This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to The Late Show on Teachers Talk Radio with Tom Hopkinsberg interviewing Pete Mattock. Uh, we'll be kicking off in just a few moments' time. Um, I'm just going to bring Tom in. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you're listening back to this as a podcast, thank you, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. I'm now going to pass over to Tom. Is it my turn now, Tom? Yes. Lovely. I, just, I wondered if there'd been some sort of terrible mistake where I couldn't hear you anymore. Um, but never mind, we are here and we are live. Um, good evening, everybody. Yes, my name is Tom Hopkinsburg, and it is part two of a Crown House special today. Um, we've just come from part one, um, which was the, Na- the Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn at 6pm, um, interviewing Eddie Costello from Square Pegs. Lots of wisdom there. And this is part two. And I'm joined by Pete Mattock, um, the author of Conceptual Maths by Crown House, and he's going to be telling us why it's important that we teach about rather than just how to do mathematics in schools. Pete, good evening. Good evening. Can you hear me all right, Tom? We can hear you perfectly. Oh, good. I was a bit nervous with this. I've never done one before. Always am, always am. Um, You're still at school this week, aren't you? Yes, yes, break up tomorrow, half-term from Monday. Lucky you, lucky Yeah, looking forward to a rest. Yes, well, thank you very much for giving up your time in um, what is a very busy half-term. And we're going to start with a question that everybody dreads, I suppose. Tell us about yourself. Um, Well, um, yeah, okay. I've been teaching maths since 2006. I qualified then. Uh, at various different schools, started uh, my career down in Oxfordshire uh, in an 11 to 18 school down there, taught there for just over four years. Um, and then January 2011, took my first role as head of department for um, another school in Oxfordshire, well, in Oxford City, um, and then uh, did that for about three years before coming back to the Midlands, because I'm from the Midlands originally. Uh, and my wife and I, or now wife, she wasn't at the time, had not long had our young daughter. And so came back north to set up our family. And I've been teaching back up here now, yeah, for pretty much since then uh, as a head of maths at an 11 to 16 school in Leicestershire and then for the last few years an assistant principal at the same school. Um, and then obviously alongside that, I've got involved in various other different bits. So I've trained with the NCTM. I've um, and done their sort of uh, mastery specialist course. With, uh, I've done a few other bits and pieces for things like Teachers TV, TES, uh, and of course those sorts of those experiences have come together into two books. Mm-hmm. And we shall be exploring the second one of those conceptual yep. maths um, during the programme. Um, I, I wanted to know, what, were you always destined to be a maths teacher, Pete? Or was it something that you sort of made a switch to in terms of your career thinking? Or were, were you always set on it? Uh, no, I definitely wasn't always destined to be a maths teacher. I mean, when I started my degree, it didn't even—I didn't even start it with as a maths degree. I started it as a physics degree. No, my uh, my first career choice was actually going to be army officer. Uh, I was an army cadet when I was younger, and I had designs of, uh, as as a lot of my friends did, of of going into the force and serving. I think I was destined to serve. 
I think that was the the sort of the key thing in it. I always wanted to be of service. Uh, and so that was the sort of start bit. But for various different reasons, that didn't happen. Um, and I started to sort of think about what it was I enjoyed about the cadets. And uh, honestly, it was the teaching bit of it more than the army bit of it. So I, I sort of started to explore that uh, while I was at uni um, and sort of wound up with that as my chosen pathway. But like I say, when I first started, you know, I actually started with a physics degree with the aim to complete a theoretical physics degree. But I'm sorry to any of the physicists out there. I was bored to death with the lab work. I just couldn't cope with it at all. It just took up so much time. So I switched from, I switched my lab unit to an algebra unit and that switched me from a physics degree with a bit of maths to a maths degree with a bit of physics. And I never looked back from there. I absolutely re-fell in love with maths during that time. Uh, I, I did modules in communicating maths to set myself up as a teacher as well. That was one of the few modules I actually got first in. Uh, and then, uh, and then, yeah, from there straight into mass teaching. So it was around the sort of middle uni years that I, that I sort of knew that's where I was going. But it certainly wasn't what I was destined for. And so, you know, you you started with a physics degree before switching to maths, and you know, you didn't always set out to be a maths teacher. Would I be right then in thinking that perhaps maths was not your favourite subject at school? How did you find maths at schools and school? And can you remember anything about how you were taught maths at school? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I was good at maths. Uh, I you know, I was in the top set. I came away with an A star at GCSE. I, I you know, breezed the, the, the GCSE exams uh, relatively straightforwardly at the time. I mean, they were simpler today. They were simpler then than they are now. The new GCSE is a bit more challenging. Uh, but, you know, so I was always good at maths, but the... Uh, the excitement for me led in the in the in the physics in the the, the study of the very small and the very big. Um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of my memories of maths, uh, they were you know perfectly pleasant. I was doing something I was good at, and I think you always, you know, you're always going to enjoy that at a certain level. If you're good at it and you can get it done, and it's relatively straightforward, then you know there's a pleasure in doing something well, isn't there? Uh, I mean, in terms of the pedagogy. Uh, I mean, it was fair, you know, we're talking about the, the mid to late 90s and it was fairly sort of standard. The teacher would show us some stuff and how to do some stuff, you know, how to solve a particular type of problem or how to do a particular type of calculation. And then we'd get a textbook out and we'd practice that for uh, a good portion of the lesson. Uh, and then we'd mark the answers and then we'd all go off and have fun. Um, and, you know, that were, that was pretty, you know, the fairly standard sort of mass lessons, I think, that a lot of people would have experienced in the sort of 90s and early 2000s. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me as if you would, and I'm not a maths teacher, I'm a history teacher. I do have an A-level in maths, that is as far as I go. Um, it sounds to me as if you would... Which is better than everything. most, Tom, to be fair. No, I know, but if I, if I get anything wrong, do not be afraid to correct me. But it sounds as if you... 
were taught maths in a very procedural way. You were taught about processes. You were taught about how to do things, whereas your book talks a lot about the concepts behind maths. So for anybody who's not a maths teacher or for anybody who hasn't picked up your book, Conceptual Maths, yet, what does it actually mean to learn maths conceptually or to teach maths conceptually? Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think that sort of process, procedural driven uh, approach to teaching maths, again, it, it was not uncommon for the era uh, and is potentially still not uncommon, although it swings back and forth uh, a little bit. But I mean, when, when I talk about conceptual maths, you know, I'm basically going to sum up the interview in this, in, in, in what I'm going to say. But uh, when I talk about conceptual maths and, and you know, it, it shares a lot with SCEMP and maths teachers out there, I'm sure will know their SCEMP and the idea of relational understanding versus instrumental understanding. But basically what it's about is about maths making sense and maths being coherent. And I think that's what was lacking, like not being able to do, I could do all the stuff, but actually did it make sense? And did I have a an idea of how it all fit together? Uh, probably not, you know. And I remember this, one of the watershed moments for me, and there have been a few, but one of the watershed moments for me was um, Marcus de Sotoy did a four-part series for the BBC called The History of Maths. Uh, and as part one, it's about halfway through part one, about 30-odd minutes in to, to part one of the four parts, he looked at how uh, Egyptian mathematicians would solve a problem to do with field area. And it's what mathematicians, you know, there are other people out there I know because I can see who's on the, who's listening on the show who know this and have seen this as well. But as sol part of solving that problem, uh, what they did was physically complete the square. And I, I had to pause the show. I was like, oh, my God. That that's what completing the square means. That's why it's called that. And that's what that looks like. And it was one of those moments, uh, you know, that you that you get as a learner, never mind as an educator, that you get as a learner where it's just like, oh, that makes sense now. And personally, for me, I think that's potentially what's a little bit lacking in, you know, certainly in my experience of maths education and maths teaching and of seeing other teachers teach and things like that. Um, and I think, you know, in the potentially in the wider sector as a whole, that idea of this stuff should make sense. It's, you know, maths is that one subject that absolutely should make sense. It, everything follows logically from one thing to the next. And what I think would improve things potentially for students is to, and, you know, obviously having worked like this for a few years, I've got anecdotal evidence that this is the case, but, um, you know, is is actually approaching those that, that subject matter in a way that pupils can see how it builds on the things that came before, not just, you know, that now we're doing non-right trig and before we did right angle trig and that's how it links, but actually they understand that whole journey about trigonometry is coming from similar triangles and everything. And there are lots of journeys like that in maths. And I think if kids see how that makes sense, how that thread follows through in a very coherent way, then potentially we have a lot more people understanding a lot more maths and we're in a, in a much better situation generally. Um, mm. So yeah, that's 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 basically that. what that was there. 
a lot of that chimes with me a lot, Pete, in terms of when I was at school and I learned maths. You know, there were some things that I was taught that you do it like this, but I was never taught why or how or what it actually meant. And that's all what you've spoken about in terms of completing a square it fits in very well with me. It's like when, you know, the quadratic formula and, you know, B squared minus 4AC is that bit, and it's either called the determinant or the discriminant, one or the other. I think it's discriminant. Correct. Uh, well done. Oh, fantastic! And I, but I, but I never, never, never understood what that actually. I, I understood that it sort of discriminates between, you know, in terms of how many times it goes through the graph or how many roots it has, whether it has one, none, or two, and whether it's positive or negative or something like that. But I don't. I didn't really understand how the formula as a whole worked, and I didn't understand, you know, um, why why it's written like it is, and how it all fits together. And there be there are other things as well, maybe involving some of the calculus at A level and things like that. Um, I just want to say a big good evening to everybody listening live. Um, we've got some fantastic maths teachers listening. Leslie, we've got Atorana, we've got Miss Kendall, we've got Sophia, um, we've got Goldie Tooth, we've got Nizakat Iqbal, um, we've got the career change teacher as well, ECT in year five, and we're going to come on and talk about primary maths in a bit as well. Um, and a very good evening as well to anybody listening back um, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts on our website, TT Radio um, forward slash um, listen back. Um, and yeah, it's fantastic to be with you here tonight and it's fantastic to have Pete on and we're talking about his book Conceptual Maths published by Crown House. Um, so you wrote one book, you wrote Visible Maths, um, not content with that you've decided to write another one. Was it? Was there always going to be a second book or was it something you had to think about? Um, I'm not sure there was always going to be a second book but I think the um the sort of idea for the second book came along while I was working on the first. Uh, and so for those people who don't know and haven't seen either book, uh, sort of Visible Maths was about models and representation and manipulatives, which uh, I'm glad to say are making their way back into mainstream, even at secondary now. I don't think they ever went away, particularly at primary, but, uh, you know, more and more secondary teachers, more and more secondary schools are exploring maths using these things. And uh, again, that was sort of a small part of let's get this to make sense. How can we, how can kids, how can we, you know, show kids this and kids can see these things in a way that's going to make sense and, and using models that are going to go with them through their curriculum journey. So, you know, uh, and people I know there are again, people on here who, who work with these things all the time and, you know, take for example, the area model, uh, which is one way of modelling multiplication. It goes through to, uh, you know, when you're multiplying with fractions, when you're multiplying with uh, algebraic terms, when you're multiplying brackets, you know, and, and this model of multiplication that can be represented as a as a rectangle and can be built with Cuisinair rods or with algebra tiles sort of, helped you know goes with students through the curriculum and helps them make sense of what's going on gives them a consistent uh reference to the concept but while i was writing that i was becoming very aware that there was more to say about more things and you know the models and the representations are important and some of them come into conceptual maths as well particularly around those number and algebra concepts but there was more to say about 
how to get kids to how how to support kids in making sense of some of these ideas and there were more ideas to talk about and i wanted to to sort of go and do that so you know as i write as i write at the start of conceptual mass it's it's designed to be a companion to the first book in that the first book goes really really deep in models and representations and manipulatives and how you can use those to support kids making sense and the second book conceptual maths is is broader that's why it's so much bigger because it is literally i think every school level math concept uh it's not so deep with the models and representations but it spreads its wings further in terms of you know questions you might ask tasks you might give things you might draw kids attention to ultimately that give them this awareness of the structure of these concepts and allows them to make sense of these concepts and also shows teachers where these concepts come back and back and back. I was having a great conversation recently around proportion um, and how that comes into so many things that look different on the surface, you know, pie charts, compound measures, um, ratio, uh, map scales, you know, all of these things, percentage, and and very often they're all taught in very very different ways. But underlying them all is this idea, is this multiplicative relationship, this proportional uh, relationship. And actually, you know, when kids are taught these things as very very separate things with their own methods, they don't it's very hard for them to get that underlying sense of, oh, actually, these are all part of the same idea. Mm-hmm. And so I, wa- I wanted to sort of showcase how you can do that, not just with models and manipulatives and representations, but with questions and with things to, you know, things that you can ask, things that you can draw attention to that that sort of do that for basically every like I say, every concept in school-level maths. So, yeah, I didn't start writing book one thinking about book two, but the idea for it certainly came along, you know, during the process of writing book one and realising, yeah, there's more to say about more things here. Yeah, it certainly feels as if they link together quite nicely. And you mentioned manipulatives, of course, in the context of visible maths. Now, this is a bit where my mental model of maths education might fall apart a little bit. Um, But looking at the history of manipulatives is quite interesting in the sense that about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, Ofsted published a report um, made to measure, which basically said that primary classrooms could use manipulatives better than they could. And then I believe, this is a bit where I might be wrong, there was an EEF report, um, which, and one of the key recommendations about improving the teaching of maths was um, using representations and manip- manipulatives in the classroom. But then we had a little bit of a, not a complete reversal, but sort of a a warning sign from the Ofsted research review, which I understand um, was not as universally acclaimed by maths teachers as it has been, in, as they have been in other subjects, where Ofsted suggested that the use of manipulatives could become a distraction, and that actually they should be used, um, you know, and scaffolded and taken away over time. Um, but yeah, no. It, anything you wanted to add on that at all, Pete? Yeah, well, I mean, I won't talk a lot about the Ofsted Research Review. My opinions on it are a matter of a, are a matter of public record, and I don't want to get the, uh, you know, the conversation sidetracked with that. Uh, nonetheless, you know, there's there's truth in what you say there that manipulatives aren't supposed to be 
something that and representations aren't supposed to be things that kids go on and use and use and use and keep using and using and using. Uh, they're supposed to give that or support that insight into the structure and to make sense of things so that the transition to the abstract, to, you know, to working with symbols is more, you know, is, is gentler for students and students can make sense of it and understand what's happening with the symbols. Uh, the, the, the problem we had and, the, you know, the problem that potentially we continue to have in certain areas is you go straight for the symbols and the kids that can follow it with the symbols, fine. They're the ones that go on and do well. But there's loads and loads of kids that for that, that's just a, that's just a mess of writing on a board with no meaning at all. And then, of course, if you don't make sense of that, then the things that build from that, you know, you're never, ever going to make sense of those either. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the EEF, uh, you, you know, your history is pretty much spot on there. The EEF uh, produced a document, I ref referenced it quite recently, about recommendations for teaching at Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3, and manipulatives were heavily referenced in there. And I think, you know, what what the Ofsted report was potentially trying to get at, although I'm not sure it did it well, was the idea that, um, you know, the wrong model, the wrong manipulative doesn't actually help kids make sense. And those of us that work with these things all the time know that actually there are there come points where the model does become a distraction, where the manipulative does become a distraction, because the thing you're trying to model is, 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 is the mo the thing you're trying to model is so I wouldn't, don't want to say difficult, but you know it's it's of a nature that actually the model doesn't really help you with insight into what's going on, uh, and there are, there every model reaches points like that, you know, and that's not just uh, to mathematics, that's physics as well. We still teach kids, uh, you know, the the ball model of the atom, which anybody who's who's gone beyond sort of GCSE A level science will know that actually that's a really good model but it's not really the way that atoms work uh, but it's a good model of helping make sense until a point and then we have to do away with it it's exactly the same with mathematical models you know they're, they're, they're most of them are good up to a point some of them go further than others but there comes a point where you have to have transitioned away from it and hopefully what the model has done there is done enough of a job and supported enough making sense that actually the kids are now fine without the model. And that's always the goal. That's always the goal, you know, for kids to be fine without the model. Um, but of course, what happens when you're only working in the abstract, the kid doesn't get it, kid doesn't remember it. All you can do is go, right, well, let's go over it again in the same way. Let's go over it again in the same way. Whereas if you've got a kid that's sort of edging towards working in the abstract and then they struggle with a particular thing. So, well, let's go back a step. Let's try and represent this. Let's try and draw this. Let's try and model this and see if we can get a sense of what's going on. And that's the real power with them. Mm. Yeah, no, it's basically like scaffold in the sense that scaffolding is taken away as well as introduced, I suppose. Um, now, you mentioned how your book, Conceptual Maths, covers just about every secondary school maths concept. And therefore, I'm led to believe it's 163,000 words. Give or take, yeah. Uh, give or take, um, which is a lot. And I didn't realise this. And when I got my review copy through um, at the start of this week um, and I saw it 
the package it came in, I thought this must be a mistake and I've got five at once or something. But no, it's huge. And you can see it in Pete's um, profile picture as well. Um, he's holding a copy there, which is um, much bigger than his head. Um, but yes, it's 163,000 words, give or take. Um, and one of my questions is, do you think there's going to be any maths teachers out there which are going to, who are going to read it cover to cover? Or is it a book which is just designed to dip in when you need ideas for teaching about a certain topic or a certain concept? Um, I mean, I hope there are some maths teachers that will, will be so enthralled with it and so engaged with it that they'll read it cover to cover. Uh, but I think in terms of use, it is probably more towards that second one. I think the only danger with the the approach of dipping in and out of it is that there's the potential to lose that thread. You know, then we're talking about, you know, making maths cohere and making maths make sense. And if you just look at, oh, I'm teaching speed now, let's see what Pete has to say about speed. Or if you, I'm teaching uh, manipulating algebraic fractions now, let's, let's have a read of what Pete has to say about that. Well, what people have got to be aware of there is that, you know, when you're talking about speed, the, the, the sort of things that I say about speed don't really help kids and don't really help teachers unless the stuff before it has also been put in place. So my best advice, because it is a huge book, and, you know, I'm not going to say that people should read it all the way through cover to cover. Uh, my best advice would probably be for those teachers that that are, you know, not going to read it cover to cover is to take it a chapter at a time. I think each chapter summarizes nicely some really important ideas and i think if you take a chapter at a time and you get a sense of what that chapter is saying then you've got the building blocks there to go right so this comes from this and this leads to this uh and actually i need to start with this here like this or you know ask these sorts of things to build them up to this bit and i think if teachers did that that's you know if you're not going to read the whole thing cover to cover then that's probably the way that they would get best use from it Mm -hmm. and so uh, you do you do mitigate this don't you in terms of the design of a book and the designs of the chapters in that you talk about prerequisites a lot um and you mentioned these a lot at the start of every chapter in that the sense of particular later chapters once if you're teaching this you need to make sure that students are comfortable with this and this and did has that did that inform sort of how you sequenced the concepts and the topics throughout the book in the sense that, you know, starting with number and ending with charts and data and graphing? Was, was that sequence of sort of how you'd introduce everything driven by this idea of prerequisites? Or did you did you sort of grapple with ha how you would sequence them in the chapters in your book? Um, I mean, yes, to an extent, but as anybody who's got into the early part of it knows, it's actually pretty impossible to to sort of create a linear model for how that sort of journey goes. That journey isn't linear. There are aspects of a concept that you need to study and then you need to put them down for a bit and study an aspect of a different concept. And then, oh, suddenly they magically appear together at a later point. So, you know, I try to structure it partly in terms of number is clearly a really important prerequisite concept for a lot of things, as are the basic operations and things like that. Uh, but, you know, I'm not saying that we, we should be teaching probability and chance and graphing right at the end of a journey. There are bits of that that are going to pop up through, you know, a student's school journey from, from year one or EYFS all the way up to, 
year 11 and potentially beyond if they go beyond. So uh, you can't, so it's not that linear sort of thing, which is why, you know, we I, literally with every concept, we talk about where the prerequisites are so people can go and find them. It's, it's, it's at the start of chapters where we introduce the first part of the concept, but it keeps coming back through the chapters when you, you know, when you, when we meet a new concept within that. And then the other, I suppose the other sort of, structural idea there was to was to group topics together uh, and you know I, I use the word topics and as i say in the book it's really hard to actually say what we mean by that mathematically because there are some of these things that you know you could be teaching here you could be teaching here so again i mentioned proportion earlier you could be teaching pie charts when you're teaching proportion because it's a proportional representation or you could be teaching pie charts when you're working with data because it's, it's generally used to represent data uh, so, you know, where you teach those things is, is kind of up to the curriculum you want to put together. But I try to group them broadly into similar topic areas. So we start with sort of, you, you know, your number, your basic operations going in that sort of direction. Uh, and then we, you know, we, we transition through to proportionality and functionality. And then we tackle, you know, uh, the stuff around shape and measure and things like that, um, and then we we sort of conclude with the statistical and probability side of things. But it's yeah, it's not it, it is not a linear journey, and I don't know anybody that I don't think it's even possible to put those things on a linear journey. Um, but it is sort of there are potentially more fundamental things towards the beginning, um, things that are prerequisite for more of the other stuff. Uh, but also they're sort of just grouped into broadly similar areas, I think, is is the sort of main design structure of the book. Oh, thank you for that. Um, and we'll talk about that a bit more in a second. I just want to say if you want to take part in the conversation, if you want to ask Pete about conceptual maths, um, in the bottom right of your screen, there's a speech bubble um, and you can use that to tweet in. Um also more than welcome to take any callers, particularly maths teachers who want to talk about conceptual maths or ask any questions of Pete as well. All you have to do is in the bottom left of your screen, there is a request to speak button. You can press it there. If you're listening back um, on our website or on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or on our um, Twitter, um, on, on the Twitter space directly, then you can tweet us um, at TT Radio Official. You can tweet Pete at Mr. Matuk and you can get involved, ask questions, tell us what you like about the book and you can do that during the show now or you can do it after the show um, the Twitter space will be available on Twitter for the next 30 days and it will also be published as a podcast on our website as well um, Is it so you talk about how maths is it's not a linear subject at all, um, is it too simplistic to say that a lot of maths curriculum design follows sort of a spiral approach um, no, I don't think it's too simplistic. I think, uh, you know, spiral or cyclical uh, curricula are, are relatively common. They're not the only curriculum model out there, obviously. But I think, uh, you know, they they have that advantage that you that you sort of explore an idea and then you explore a different idea and then you come back to the earlier idea, perhaps in conjunction and things like that. So I think, you know, no matter how you structure your curriculum, you are going to be returning to ideas that you looked at before. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't think it is that. I think, you know, in terms of mathematics, there's definitely it's definitely hierarchical in nature in terms of there are certain things that 
you have to look at before you can look at other things. But that's n that's not a linear hierarchy. And in fact, um, you know, one of the best diagrams out there is something that LaSalle put together, um, LaSalle Education, that is. And they um, they have this diagram that shows sort of key learning points. They're not concepts, but key learning points about school level maths and how they connect and things like that. And it's a, you know, it's a huge diagram of 3D in nature. Uh, and that sort of shows the complexity around it. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, however your curriculum design goes, ultimately, you are going to be coming back to concepts you previously studied and looking at them in the new light or combining them with new things. Whether you, you know, as a cyclic curriculum, have to revisit the same thing in the same way that you've done before you know and you see that you see uh we teach kids to add, add fractions in year eight and then we'll do it again in year nine well i mean okay yeah but if you if you secured it in year eight why would you have to go and do it again in year nine particularly if you've been using it sort of continually coming back to it all the way through uh, but yeah, no spiral curriculum. I think and it is you know fairly common, and it, it, it will help you capture those places where you need to come back and revisit concepts in new circumstances and in new lights. Mm -hmm. Now you see, all as a history teacher, the idea of a spiral curriculum and hierarchical knowledge and things like that is quite alien to us in that sense. And in the sense that history curriculum design and maths and maths and science curriculum design is so incredibly different in many in many ways. Um, let's see who else we've got. We've got Andre who has joined as well. Very good evening. We've got Catherine as well. Very good evening in the studio live. Um, you've talked about prerequisites you've talked about how things fit into this bigger picture not just in terms of where things come from but also in your book you talk about what what it leads to and the ideas that this leads to and how this how the stuff which is visited in the book then acts as a prerequisite for other stuff do students need to understand this this idea of this bigger picture of how it all links in or is it is it in and do students need to be able to articulate this or is this something that actually is sufficient so long as the teachers know where it all fits in and so long as the students are learning it then actually that's sufficient or do students need to be able to understand this and articulate this uh, I mean, I definitely think students need to to be able to understand it, and I think that you know that's one of the major points is that if students ultimately leave a mathematical education at sixteen and don't do any further, you know, explicit mathematical education, I mean, maths is is part of a lot of subjects, and they will use mathematical ideas in a lot of subjects, no matter what they go on to do. But if they're not explicitly being taught maths beyond sixteen, and they leave maths at sixteen without this idea that you know these things are all connected they're all part of a bigger whole and, and you know the the things i studied here are linked to the things i've studied here like this and things like that that actually they probably don't know an awful lot about maths at that point if they can't do that uh, and if they don't understand that and they don't recognize that so and i think you know that's 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 the main purpose of conceptual maths is it's Yes, teachers need to understand that, but they need to understand that so that they can effectively communicate it to pupils. Uh, in terms of articulation, I mean, 
I think they need to be able to self-articulate. You know, they need to be able to articulate it to themselves. I don't think there's anybody else that they need to be able to say this is this and this is this too. I think it's important that, you know, in their own words and in their own way, they've they've been able to, I keep coming back to the phrase, but it is probably the most important phrase that I use. They need to be able to make sense of that journey that they've been on and those ideas that they've encountered and how they link to each other and how they connect to each other for themselves. So, you know, I wouldn't be asking students necessarily to articulate that and use the same language I would use, but I, it would be important that they that they can articulate it for themselves and say, you know, this is what it means to me and this is what I've uh, noticed and recognised and understood from that journey. Um, and I think, but I think if they leave mathematics, you know, at 16 or at 18 or whenever they do, uh, without a sense of that, um, and, you know, this is what a lot of students do end up doing, leaving without that sense. And, you know, one of the biggest detractions that we get about mathematics education is it's a lot of facts. It's a lot of my memorization. It's a lot of formulae. And I've just got to remember all of these, all of these multitude of things uh, and wheel them out at the right time. Well, that's, I mean, that's the problem for me is is that actually that multitude of things probably doesn't need to be that huge because several of them arise from the same idea. And actually, if you had a good understanding of the structure of that idea, you would be able to apply it much more effectively to this, 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 and this. And that would help with, you know, the few bits that you do have to remember and you do have to memorize because there are some things, uh, you know, um but yeah uh I've, I've lost the thread i was talking about there so so yeah you know it's definitely something that that students should be aware of we should be making that explicit in whichever way that we want to make that explicit and i'm not here to talk about you know the pedagogies that people should employ that's 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 up to them and their context but what we should be aiming to do absolutely for me is make sure that students understand that maths, there's this thing called maths that maybe has these different concepts within it, but there's there's connections here and there's, you know, things that might look very different on the surface are actually all part of a deeper underlying idea. Uh, and I absolutely think that students should leave education understanding that and being able to self-articulate it. And that's certainly helped by the ideas in your book and how it all pieces together, you know, and it makes many parts into a whole and things like that. And that's what, you know, flicking through your book, that's what it does so well. Do you think, though, that students are leaving schools at the age of 16 with this in place? Given, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the most common exam board is for GCSE maths, but I'm looking at the Excel grade boundaries here. And, you know, you only need 57% to get grade seven and now a lot of sick forms that i've looked at um one of their prerequisites for a level maths is a grade seven in maths um, but that's still getting more than two-fifths of a paper wrong um so do you so do you think that students are really leaving school at the moment with this conceptual idea of maths in place uh, probably not as widely as they should be and you know that's one of the motivations for putting a book like this out there and for doing the work that I do around the circuit and conferences and things like that, because yeah, you know, one of the things I I, I will say to 
teach us all the time is, you know, forget the, well, no, actually, you know, the, the grade seven there is, as you said, is just over 50%. And what's really shocking to me is that only one in five kids actually get that, you know, give or take, depending on the year, only one in five kids actually get that. So, you know, 750,000. And I think, you know, not wanting to name drop different exam boards here, but I think, you know, the lion's share of it is potentially Edexcel, although obviously AQA and OCR and WJC or Educash in England uh, get their bits as well. Um, but, you know, the, on all of those papers, the, the grade boundaries are relatively similar. And on all of those, it's roughly one in five kids. So what we're doing here is basically putting kids through 16 years of maths education uh, and only one in five of them pop out even be able even being able to meet that threshold which as you've identified is not actually that high i mean like i said before the new gcse is much more challenging than the old one and rightly so uh but the threshold for being in that top 20 percent is only you'd say between 50 and 60 percent on the the exam series so and I, I can't hold my hands up and say i've done better than that you know i mean i, I maybe up to a quarter uh or something like that in the schools that I've worked in. Um, and, but I, I can't say I've done better than that because, you know, it, it requires that something fundamental to change in that 16 year journey before we are going to get better than that. But I think the fundamental thing that needs to change is, uh, you know, like I say, actually kids learning about mathematical ideas and take understanding these concepts and being able to see them again. And, you know, saying oh yeah i know that that's just like when we did this or that that's that that's that we should hear that a lot in maths classrooms and i don't think we we hear it as much as we perhaps should so yeah i mean in terms of are they getting that i think the evidence is quite clear that that's not really happening for the vast majority of students but it is going to need something fundamental to change across the you know the entire age range from from five years old up to 16 years old to do that and you know we're making the right noises potentially the nctm and their work around teaching for mastery uh has got some good bits and pieces in there um but uh, th there's probably more that still needs to happen in terms of systemic change for, for that to really become a reality yeah i think it's i think it's absolutely remarkable that based on what you've said and based on what i've seen that four-fifths of students at the age of 16 are finishing you know are leaving school and they've got half of their gcse maths paper wrong i think it's i think it's remarkable um and it reminds me well of... it's not quite like that because obviously the kids that do the foundation paper will will be getting a lot more than that but of course the kids that are getting the doing the foundation paper are not um you know, not not even taking that journey as far as they could, hmm. in effect. So yeah, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. But ultimately, you know, bottom line, what eighty percent of kids cannot do is is open a higher paper and get you know beyond halfway. Hmm. In if in effect, they don't they don't understand enough maths to do that. They can't apply enough maths to do that. Hmm. No, thank you for the clarification. They're very important, um, and. Yeah, you mentioned as well um, teaching for mastery. Um, and we've spoke earlier on in the show about this difference between, say, procedural maths and conceptual maths and, you know, the differences and the similarities between them. Um, 
for those of you, for those people who aren't NAFTA teachers like me, who hear these ideas about teaching for mastery and things like that, what what is teaching for mastery in maths, and how similar is it to conceptual maths? <laughs> oh, we're opening up a big can of worms here, Tom. I can tell you because master. What you take up most of it. Sorry, say that again. We've got 47 minutes left, and I've got a few more questions after the master. Yeah, no, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll try and be succinct. So, yeah, I mean, the, the one of the things with master is it does mean different things to different people, uh, and that's, you know, potentially a problem. So, in terms of the NCTM and teaching for mastery, what that's about basically are some good practices that should enable students to develop a sort of procedural understanding alongside a conceptual understanding. And let's be clear, you know, nobody's saying that procedural understanding isn't important. Kids have got to be able to select calculation strategies. They've got to be able to solve problems. They've got to be able to sort of run processes through in an efficient way. Uh, the, the point here is that if that's all they can do, then that's not a lot, you know? So what the what the teaching for mastery about certainly in terms of what the NC, nctm says and i don't want to talk for them because i you know although i have done work for them up until very very recently i'm not now you know part of what they do um but what it's about ultimately is some, it's some good things to think about for teachers that should enable that further depth of development of understanding around concepts as well as the procedures at the same time you know one of the fundamental things they talk about is that coherent journey they they look at representation they look at something called variation theory which we definitely don't have time to go into in any great detail uh and you know and mathematical thinking and fluency which is different to automaticity uh you know it's being able to use those ideas flexibly and spot when those ideas are going to be used so uh you know there there is def like i said earlier there is definitely some good stuff from that but what a potentially you know what potentially uh needs more we need we probably need more in that area we probably need more structures for teach structure for teachers in that area in terms of you know yes we can approach these concepts coherently but what does that look like more widely and i think conceptual maths is potentially the start of that um but I think it's, you know, we've, we've still got work to do as a sector to, to sort of embed those ideas. Yes, I mean, if you mentioned mastery to, to our maths department in my school, they, you know, you can't shut them up for about an hour talking about mastery and all of the sorts of implications and all of the challenges and all of the strengths of it as well. Um, and so, yeah, I... I I mean, I find this all very fascinating. And one of the things which I wanted to talk about as well um, regarding conceptual maths, but also linking to the processes and how these link together is this idea of having multiple methods. If you have a student who has got, you know, one method of, you know, doing multiplication of um, integers or something, and they're very comfortable with that method. But then as a maths teacher, you try to introduce a couple of other methods and you try to show them sort of, you know, multiple methods of tackling problems. Um, how important is it that, to teach multiple methods for tackling problems when students in maths classrooms may actually just prefer to use just one? So, I mean, I think the, 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 there's a couple of things to say about that. And that is, uh, that first of all, the method is the wrong place to start. You know, and anybody who introduces an art, a concept 
with a method to do things in that concept that's where that's where ultimately the you know the problems lie so i mean let's take column multiplication as, as a prime example um you know that's a process that many many kids are familiar with many many kids can carry out it's you know the it's the agreed algorithm if you like for key stage two sats where uh, i'm not sure if you're aware tom but i know that there'll be mass teacher listeners who are aware uh they you know if they don't use that method then they don't get the method marks in the sats they if they get the answer right they can use whatever method they like and get marks but if they get the answer wrong they'll only get method marks if they use that particular method but I think the you know the the important thing there is if if you're starting an exploration of multiplication with there's this thing called a column column multiplication algorithm, and this is how it allows us to multiply big numbers, then we're we're starting sort of a bit late on. What we need to be understanding first is, you know, what does it mean to multiply? What does that look like? how do I make sense of this idea called multiplication? And there are multiple different ways that we can think about multiplication. Uh, you know, there is repeated addition. I've mentioned areas. There is scaling. There is unitization. Uh, most of this actually is invisible maths, not conceptual maths for multiplication. But there are things like that in conceptual maths as well. So, yes, we might sort of look at... Um, different ways of thinking about multiplication and one of those may lead us towards the column multiplication algorithm but then you know how important is it to then go to to other methods well if we're looking at different ways of making sense of multiplication then well where do they lead you know where where what does that tell us about how i might calculate some stuff uh you know and one of those, the area model, leads into the grid method of multiplication, which in terms of a, a model, the area model and being able to represent multiplications as an area and then as a grid is, is generally speaking, a model with much more longevity. You know, like I say, it's much easier to, to make sense of later multiplications when you're multiplying things like fractions, when you're multiplying things like... Um, you know, algebraic terms, when you're multiplying or expanding brackets, the area model is a much more flexible model for those scenarios than anything that, that, that leads towards the, the column multiplication algorithm. And I think as well that if you've only got the one method, then you've only got... So that was the first point. The second point is if you've only got the one method, then when there are times when that method is inefficient, you're in a bit of trouble. And, you know, one of my favorite examples here is uh, calculate. It's not multiplication, it's subtraction. If I ask kids to calculate 3,002, subtract 2,999. And, you know, I, I ask kids to do that in year seven and they dutifully write out 3,002, subtract 2,999 in columns and they do that subtraction. And some of them will get that wrong. And it's not because they don't know how to do column subtraction. It's because of the amount of exchanging that's involved there. You have to borrow from the 3,000, not borrow. You have, yeah, well, yeah, we can call it borrow. Uh, mm. You have to, you know, exchange your 3,000 for some hundreds and then go, and kids just mess up. They make mistakes there. And, you, you know, you, you look at that and you think, how has a kid got to year seven and not recognize that 3,002 minus 2,999 is a difference of three? which is fundamentally a different way of thinking about subtraction than the take-away model that the mm. subtraction algorithm uses. 
And if they don't see those different ways of making sense, then those strategies that they can choose to employ at different scenarios just aren't there. You know, they're not there for use at all. And that's where kids start to fall behind and struggle. And so, you know, in terms of how important it is, it's really, really important because each of these procedures that we might employ links to different ways that we might make sense of things. And we are going to need those different ways of making sense of things if we are going to package that as a whole learning maths and the journey of learning maths. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, really, really important because, say, what we want kids to do is it's not be pinned to one method. It's to select the appropriate method for the situation they are in. The reason why I asked that question was because just before I broke up for half term, I sat in I sat in our staff room with one of our other history teachers and one of our geography teachers who each, due to timetabling pressures and due to the fact that they have A-levels in maths, teach half a year seven class each. And they got onto a bit of a curriculum which was dividing fractions by fractions. And as any, you know, as any kid, in the country, if you said the word letters KFC to them, um, <laughs> first thing they'll think about is chicken, and the second thing they'll say is keep flip change. Um, but they were going to teach this lesson on the bar model of dividing fractions, and I sat in this staff room with them for thirty. I was I was out the door, and thirty five minutes later, I was still there, and I was trying to decipher this in terms of how how on earth do you use these bars to divide one third by two fifths or something i you know it's like well yes well how many yes how many thirds can you get into two fifths draw these bars etc i and i i couldn't understand it and i felt so fortunate that i wasn't the one who'd made my a level in maths public knowledge and therefore had to teach me and it now that i'm hosting a radio show on it it probably it now is public and therefore i'll probably have a year seven class next year um but can you please, for, because I'm going to be sharing this with my maths department once we've published the interview, and I, I just want a really simple and, con not simple, because it's not simple, but a concise and effective and efficient way of just explaining how I would divide one third by two fifths using that bar model way of thinking about it. Okay, well, I mean, to do that without an image is quite challenging. So what I'll do... What I'll an image but if you could sort of because I, I can sort of picture the image i can picture the squares and i can picture where i might have to draw the bars or something so um but it, it, any wonderful I, I know that your book conceptual matter relies so much on these images and making it really crystal clear so any descriptive language you can use would be most beneficial yeah, no, that's fine. So, I mean, the first thing I will do is say, yes, I'll go through that. But I will also point you and any other listeners to my YouTube channel because division of fractions using Cuisinaire, which are sort of a physical manipulative bar model, uh, are is, is in there. Uh, and you can actually see it happening. You can see it going alongside. So uh, in order to, to really get at that with you, uh, I need you to understand that there's a model of division which is about comparison. So when we talk about, as a simple example, six divided by two, yeah, let's start with that. We can think about that as splitting six into two equal pieces. We can think about that as, as having six and creating groups of two. Mm -hmm. Or we can think about it in terms of how does six compare to two? 
in a multiplicative sense. How many times bigger is six than two? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that, of course, is three times bigger. Uh, and one of the key questions that comes alongside that is, uh, and it's one of my favourite questions in all of mathematics, and it's about it's with division, is what if this was one? So imagine a bar that was six long, six squares long, and then imagine a bar underneath it that was two squares long, and then imagine me asking the question, what if that thing that's two squares long is what we now call one? So that's now the number one. How big would the thing uh-huh. above be? Yeah. And, and the thing above. Carry on. Yeah. So the thing above would obviously be three. Now, ultimately, the same model works for division of fractions. So, you mean you talked about a third divided by two fifths. Now, in order to look at that division as a bar model, what you've got to be clear on, and this is one of the things we're not good at in this country when it comes to fractions. And again, I know there are some listeners on there, hi, Apple, that have heard me talk about this before. Um, but one of the things we're not good at in this country is making clear the fractional relationship to one. Yeah, so we talk about fractions in terms of splitting the whole, but when you've got a third of a whole, you've got a third of that whole, and that whole could be worth anything. You know, if that whole's worth 10, you've got a third of 10. If that whole's worth 30, you've got a third of 30. To actually get the number one third, you've got to, you've got to be talking about that in relation to one. So the first step in representing fractions, particularly two fractions with different denominators using bars is, well, actually, how big is my one? What does one look like in this scenario? And obviously, if we're talking about thirds and fifths, then uh, a one, the one is going to need to be something that I can divide into three equal pieces because otherwise I can't get thirds. And I also need to be able to divide it into five equal pieces or I can't get fifths. Yes, I've just read but I could have given you two better denominators. For this. No, 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 it's fine. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's perfectly good. So, so you know, if we're thinking about a number that I can third and I can fifth, then the obvious candidate, hopefully you'll agree, Tom, is 15. Yes. Yeah. So what I want you to picture is I want you to picture a bar that is 15 squares long and that bar represents one. And so now that we've got that one, Above that, we can think about what would two-fifths would look like. Well, if one, if 15 squares represents one, then obviously one square, one-fifth would be three squares. And so two-fifths would be six squares. Mm. Yeah. So we, we've got a bar above that that's six squares long that represents two-fifths. Yeah. And then our third will be right well if we if we're talking about a th- if our one is 15 squares long then a third is five squares yes yeah so what we've got is that is that picture of a bar with five squares and then a bar with six squares representing the third and the two fifths mm-hmm. and then we've got a bar underneath that which is 15 representing one okay and then what i want you to imagine is that we rub out that bar of 15 yeah done it now and we change the the bar that was six so that we now call that one and again that's 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 that same question what if this was now one and so what fraction of that do we have in the top bar well we had five squares our one is now six squares oh. and so the result the result of that division is five six yes i can see it very clearly on my piece of paper that i'll tweet out later yeah and that's exactly what you get if you do keep flip change you know, you do one third divided by two fifths becomes one third times five halves. 
uh, and that becomes five six. Yeah. So that's that's the way that that sort of model leads to that. And in fact, it really nicely that model that I've just talked about. Because there are other ways of modelling that, but that model that I've really talked that I've just talked about really leads nicely into why you multiply by the reciprocal, which is my preferred way of, it, of talking about that rather than keep flip change. I'm doing a third multiplied by the reciprocal of two fifths because actually it's multiplied by the reciprocal that makes one. That's what the nature of the reciprocal is. You know, if you want to turn two fifths into one, you multiply it by five halves. That's what you do. And so actually, you know, by by turning that two fifths into one, by multiplying by five halves, you also have to multiply the third by five halves as well. And that's where that sort of idea sort of comes full circle into the abstract. Uh, but yeah, say for anybody that didn't follow that, it's on my YouTube video, very similar example, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's on my YouTube video and you can hear me narrate that with the bars actually doing that and the calculation being written alongside. Yeah, uh, but it's a visual, but now I drew out exactly what you did there and I thought it was, um, you know, and very well explained and much better than I managed in that 45 minutes of my life. I'll never get back <laughs> on a night uh, somewhere in deepest, darkest, rainy Nottinghamshire. Um, I should point out that Pete's book um, is published by Crown House um, and we've got, we've had some shows from Crown House um, with other Crown House authors as well, which I want to talk about. Um, just before me, um, he's in the studio now with Nathan Ginn. Um, I mentioned it at the start of the show, but um, he was talking to Eddie Costello, um, talking about square pegs um, and those students who just don't fit into our educational system um, for one reason or another, um, and talking about persistent absence or, and um, ways in which we can actually empower students and get them in our classrooms and get them learning. Um, we also, back... Um, on the 3rd of February, um, we had a show with John Gibbs. He was talking to Colin Diamond um, and was talking about the Birmingham book and um, lessons in urban education policy for the Trojan horse affair, um, which is somebody who's fascinated in these sorts of things as a history teacher and a social sciences teacher. Um, it was a really, really good show as well. We've also got some shows coming up um, in the future as well with Crown House. So we've got two shows with Graham Stanley, and we've got Christian Steele, and they're going to be talking about test-enhanced learning, which I'm really looking forward to. And Kamala Gita Hughes um, is going to be talking about the Mindful Teachers Handbook and one which I'm really looking forward to it will be on Twitter Spaces on a Thursday evening just like this show um, with Hannah Wilson um, she's got Toria Bono on and they're going to be talking about her book Tiny Voices Talk so we've got some fantastic shows coming up with Crown House um, as well um, but we're here at the moment we're talking to Pete Mattock we're talking about his book Conceptual Maths which um, is fantastic and we've been talking about um, how we teach maths conceptually and you know and why this means that we need to be teaching about mathematics rather than just how to do it. Um, I should also point out that your book is available on Kindle. Um, if you don't fancy lugging about all 163,000 words and their weight um, with you, that you can get a Kindle version. Um, and I just wanted to ask you about how your book would support particular teachers in particular stages of their careers or in particular settings. And I wanted to talk about primary teachers, because some primary teachers, Pete, would look at your book and go, oh, thirds, I don't know what a third is. But they'll find other parts of the book useful um, as well. And they'll find most of it useful, in fact. Um, so how how does your book support those primary teachers particularly those who might not be as confident with their maths teaching um as primary maths specialists or secondary maths teachers 
Yeah, I mean, really good question, actually, Tom, because, uh, you know, there's two parts to that. And the first one is, when I say every school level concept, I mean every school level concept. You know, we're not just talking the secondary school level concepts. We're talking about the very basic concepts that and the foundational concepts that are introduced at primary level at year one in EYFS. So, you know, the first part of the chapter in number talks about the transition that pupils make. Uh, it doesn't talk in great detail because it's not my personal specialism, but it talks about and recognises that the transition that kids need to make from one-to-one -one representation, which is, you know, um, which comes in two parts. It's when I talk about one toy, say, I actually see one toy. Um, and, you know, but then if I talk about one apple, I see one apple. And, and having that context combined with the mathematics to a point where there's a transition that kids need to make where they um, transition to, I can think about one toy and I can think about one apple, but I can represent it using this counter or this tile or this bead on a wreck and wreck or abacus or something like that. Um, and, you know, that that's a transition that happens really, really early on. Uh, and it, it's definitely a transition, you know, that there are lots of excellent primary practitioners out there and early years practitioners and year one practitioners that will be able to talk a lot more intelligently about it than I can. Uh, and then there's a second transition, which is that one to many transition, which is actually when I see one object, I'm aware that it could be worth something other than one. Uh, you know, and that's normally done, you know, with with things like Dinesh blocks and 10 frames and things like that, where you, you know, you, you put your 10 counters into a frame or maybe Numicon. And so you've got the, the you can see the 10 at the same time as being able to treat it as a single object. And eventually you transition into something like place value counters where you can sit, you, you have a counter that's simply worth 10. And of, obviously, of course, money is like that. You know, you transition into money where this one object is worth 50 times greater than this object. If you're talking about a one pence piece and a 50 pence piece and stuff like that. So, you know, primary, the, the, the maths of the primary curriculum is definitely catered for within that book but you're right it does go all the way through school levels so it goes to secondary but i think the other thing that is really really important is both primary and secondary maths teachers understanding where the maths they're teaching leads and where it comes from and when we, you know when we talked earlier about systemic things that need to change for this 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 idea that kids are going to go on a journey with maths and understand understand these threads that they come to, that they pick up and put down and then come back and weave into this narrative. Uh, it's going to be really, really important that primary maths teachers understand that the maths they're teaching now and the way that they're teaching it is going to influence this, 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 and this at secondary level. And similarly, it's really important that secondary teachers understand that the maths I'm teaching now builds on and comes from this, this, and this, and this, that they would have explored at primary school and to have an understanding of what pupils' experiences might have been at that level so that they can help weave that next part of the narrative, that next part of the tapestry, 
uh, together for pupils and help pupils to see that next part. So, you know, that's why it is literally every school level concept, because I think anybody that teaches maths, and it's, I know it's a big ask, and it's more of an ask for primary teachers than it is for secondary teachers, because secondary teachers, with the exception of the non-specialists, like you've talked about, only really need to worry about their subject, whereas primary teachers need to worry about every subject. You know, that is not an easy thing to do, and my hat goes off to all of them to for, for being able to do that. But I think it's really important for everybody that's teaching maths to have some understanding of where that bit of maths that you're teaching goes and how you can set the kids up with what you're doing now in a way that is going to allow them to continue to make sense of that as it progresses through the curriculum. Mm. And so that's what I, that's why I would be saying what would be saying to primary teachers is, yes, you will find things in there. You know, you will find representation, you will find questions, you will find tasks that are going to be suitable for the kids that you're working with now. But one of the really big reasons that they are going to be suitable is because they lay the foundation for where kids are going to go with it in a way that's going to allow them to to sort of access that tapestry and to and to weave that narrative uh, together over time. Yeah, I think the point you make there about how primary um, transitions into secondary, etc., I think that's really, really important. It's certainly not one which is limited maths um as you know as, as a history department we are always very keen to know what history has been taught um in primary schools and i suppose the difference between maths and history although it may be an oversimplification is that the maths that is taught in primary schools you know there's very little in term there's very little difference in terms of what maths is taught and differences in terms of how it's taught but in terms of what maths is taught um ultimately um it's very, it must be very similar whereas in history we have some students who've come in who've studied all sorts of different events we've got some students who've studied martin luther king we've got some students who've studied the romans or the aztecs or the incas um or i don't know um they've all, almost all of them have done victorian britain or the blitz and sort of the home front and stuff like that and but we've got that huge variation in terms of sort of the concept the, the concepts within history in terms of substantive concepts well as i suppose with maths it's much more you know similar in terms of what is being taught and therefore a book like conceptual maths is very useful as a companion as a guide for somebody thinking about that transition right yeah yeah i think that's you know i think that's absolutely fair is that yeah you know the the, the maths curriculum uh, is very prescriptive, uh, you know, primary and secondary in terms of what mathematics kids should encounter. Uh, it's a lot less prescriptive about how they should encounter it. Uh, and, you know, that's where we get that variation. And that's where, uh, you know, some kids will, will encounter mathematical ideas in a way that allows secondary teachers to build on them. And some kids will encounter mathematical ideas that, in a way that is very, you know, again, to borrow Skemp's language, very instrumental and that, you you know, uh, potentially has embedded some misconceptions and that you would need to begin to unpick. But, yeah, no, I think that I think that's, you know, quite a quite a reasonable way of putting that, Tom. I think you're right on that regard. Mm. And I want to talk because we talk about primary teachers there, but I won't talk about and this is just a completely hypothetical example of somebody who's you know, 
eight, eight, straight A star, strict, straight grade nine in maths at school at GCSE and A level. Gone to do a three year degree in maths. Has you know and university maths. I wouldn't understand it as maths. I'd just look at it and go, what on earth is going on there? Um, and they've done that. They've done a three year undergraduate degree in maths. They've got a first, um, you know. The first in every unit, let's say, and they decide, oh, with all of my wisdom and all of my knowledge of maths, I reckon I can go and teach in a secondary school. And they do, because actually teaching is a fantastic career. And they turn up on their PGCE or investigate course or whatever, and they're given their first timetable and they're given... Let's say because math sets a lot, or you, you know, you every mo, mo, almost every maths department must set, um, but then they're given bottom set year nine to teach, um, and they don't understand as a trainee teacher or as a, or as a ECT or as any teacher, I suppose they don't understand what these students in front of them know and don't know and they don't understand that they can't sort of empathize and they can't put themselves in that student's shoes they assume that things that must be obvious and must you know they must get that actually these students don't understand how can your book support somebody in that very sort of extreme and over exaggerated position how can how can conceptual math support somebody in that position to actually make maths clear and actually teach about maths to students who actually they may not be able to understand what what's going on in their minds yeah so i think there's a couple of different uh, ways that it would support teachers like that i mean i think one we've talked about already which in terms of the prerequisites so you know if you're trying if you've got a bottom set year nine say and you're trying to uh, teach them about Pythagoras' theorem, uh, which you shouldn't be doing with the bottom set year nine if they don't have the prerequisites anyway. Uh, but and they, you know, they're they're really struggling to get this. And you go, how can they be struggling to get this? Well, I mean, they're probably struggling to get it because actually, you know, there are there are things that are prerequisite that they don't get and that they don't have that they that they've not connected into their you know to borrow language of, from cognitive science their schema. So, you know, and that would be potentially things like, well, actually, you know, the area of a square. Uh, if they don't really understand how squaring gives the area of that square, assuming you are going to teach with some form of representation and not just try and tackle it in the abstract anyway. Um, so it can highlight to you where the prerequisites are. So you can go and have a look at those and say, right, well, actually, I need to establish first which of these gaps is missing. And that, you know, you've got to do that with kids in maths. There's no good, and Mark McCourt talks about this a lot, there's no good employing that sort of conveyor belt curriculum where, right, a time to do that is finished, so now we're going to do this. But if this is built on that, and whether they, you know, whether the time for it is finished or not, if they haven't got that, if they don't understand that, then doing this is fruitless because they don't, of course they're not, how can you expect them to get it? How can you expect them to reach that level of understanding you want? Because the thing before it wasn't secure. So it can highlight the prerequisites and it can show them, you know, uh, well, I, I potentially need to assess where kids are with these things first and then look at which of those I might need to re-explore before I then go on and look at this idea with them that I want to look at. Uh, it can obviously support them in terms of making that maths more visible to them 
Uh, and again, visible mass would be the main one to do that, but not with Pythagoras' theorem because I don't cover it in visible mass. Uh, but uh, you know, making that math that mass more accessible to them, more visual visual to them, so that they can actually make sense of it, they can see what's happening, they can reach that understanding uh, because it's not just a bunch of squiggles on a page, which is what you know math looks like to some kids. Or just, bunch of symbols that when these symbols come in this order it means this um so it can help them in that regard as well uh, and it can help them with like I say one of the big things i did want to put in here is questions and tasks that that draw attention to the right things and there's a lot of practice that goes on in maths and when i talk about practice i don't necessarily mean teaching practice now i mean things that we actually do get kids to do uh you know and we get exercises that we give kids to do which is not necessarily drawing attention to the things that we want it to draw attention to. And so uh, there are tasks in there that are really, really good for, um, and, you know, they're not necessarily my tasks. Some of them are, but I've borrowed them from huge amounts of different places. So, you know, some, some great maths educators out there that come up with some wonderful tasks that I borrowed and with their permission published so that everybody that reads the book can see them. Uh, but there are tasks in there that they could be that they could be asking students to do or questions that they could be asking of students that will potentially help draw those kids' attention to the things that they really do need to have their attention drawn to in order to understand that idea. So I think those those would be the main ways that a book like Conceptual Maths would help a teacher in that scenario. Thank you for that. And I should point out, of course, that if you are a mentor of a trainee teacher or if you're a head of maths and you want to buy a copy of conceptual maths for your department or a couple of copies or one for every teacher um, that you can get um, a copy tom rogers has very kindly pinned a tweet to the top of his twitter space and um, if you're listening live um, from crown house where you can actually buy conceptual maths with free uk shipping um, at crownhouse.co.uk um, that's crownhouse.co.uk if you're listening back and you can't see the pinned tweet um, so yeah um, I think you know that's it's really important to actually this is a book that can support teachers at completely different stages and actually also those teachers who may have been teaching maths for 20 or 30 years who you know have gone well this is how I've always done it and might potentially turn up their nose at new ways of thinking of maths and actually you know, look, you know, the way of actually breaking down concepts and going back to first principles in some cases, I think is really important as well. Um, I want because the book is conceptual maths and it's all about concepts. I want to know what other concepts that let's say secondary teachers of maths struggle to teach the most in your experience. Is it stuff like constructions or is it just that the kids don't like those? Um, is it something else? What What are those concepts that teachers, you know, that teachers in maths departments go, oh, I really don't like teaching that because kids just don't seem to get it or even worse, oh, I just don't know how to explain it really clearly. Are there any concepts in maths that really stand out in that regard? Uh, I mean, yeah, there are a few, but they're very different for different teachers. And, you know, it's always one of the fun things. We get it come round every couple of years, the poll, you know, which of these things do you like teaching the, the most? Which of these things do you like teaching the least? And you've mentioned one of them. Constructions is one that that's on there. And, you know, I always, in fact, you know, constructions is, is probably the most off 
uh, sort of reference one in terms of when people are talking about what could come off the maths curriculum. You know, most people go for pencil and ruler, pencil ruler and compass constructions. Uh, you know, is something that that's very antiquated and, and blah blah blah. Uh, but the point I always make with something like that is, well, yes, it is. But what it is 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 a new way of looking at shape properties uh, and the properties of shapes, diagonals and angles and sides and things like that. Uh, and that you know that th those are really fundamental things. You know, what makes a square a square? Well, it has these properties, and actually, constructions gives you a new vehicle into that. It also links really nicely with uh, inequalities of regions because when you're drawing loci what you are in effect doing is is drawing an inequality a, a, you know a region for an inequality before we that people used to do before we had the language of algebra where we could express those inequalities algebraically uh, so it links really nicely into into things like that and into graphical work you know we don't teach it in the secondary curriculum but the parabola, which most people know as the as the x square graph, started life as a construction. It is the locus of all points that are equidistant from a point and a line. So you know there are loads of different, and this is what I mean. When, and this is why I think conceptual mass was was so important for me is because these sorts of links are not things that that you know pe that people will have necessarily come across, will necessarily appreciate. Uh, I remember talking a long time ago with with a group of people and saying you know this is all great but where do we get the time to actually do this thinking and that was one of the things that stuck with me you know mass teachers don't have time to do this thinking so what i'm trying to do is is help support that by saying well here's some of my thinking uh along these lines and i have you know made time to sit and think about these things so use that as a start point use that as a way to get your own brain going with it uh, so, yeah, I mean, coming back to your original question, which I'm aware I'm not answering, uh, <laughs> constructions is definitely in there. Um, people, um, I think, not necessarily that they don't, that they not enjoy teaching, but I think that potentially that they don't teach in a way that links with this is, is, is stuff like averages. Uh, and the measures that we use for average, um, it's not necessarily one that's often quoted in terms of things that don't like teaching or things that people um, don't, you know, that don't think feel like they teach well. Uh, but actually, a lot of that is very instrumental in nature. And so, you know, you ask many, many kids, uh, you know, I would I would venture the vast majority of kids uh what mean is and the vast majority of adults potentially at least those that remember it at all uh and they're going to tell you oh it's where you add them all up and divide by how many there are yeah um and that's i mean ugh, i i haven't got time i don't think to go into all the things that are wrong with that can you still hear me because i've got a thing on here that says connecting oh, we can still hear you carry on okay that's fine yeah so i haven't got time to go into all the ways that that is wrong and bad uh basically but you know that's there that's a that's a massive experience that a lot that a lot of kids have with those sorts of things so i think there's you know there's definite work to do around that um and approaching that in a much more you know what does it what not wanting to get the language tripped up here but what does mean mean what does it actually mean to to think about mean and what what mean is and stuff like that so i think that's one 
Um, and then, you know, say all maths teachers have different things that they that they say, oh, I, I don't like this or I really like this. You know, uh, teaching trick to foundation kids is something that a lot of maths teachers just shake their heads at in despair. Um, but all of the, you know, all of these things are actually part of though that that tapestry that journey and and they all link together so actually you know if we if people if we really appreciate that and we we approach the subject teaching in a way that that is designed to make that explicit to pupils then i don't think there's anything really that i would be saying well that definitely needs to come out or uh you know that that that's something that i that people should feel like well, I don't really want to be teaching that. Uh, the last one I will mention is is statistics generally because there are people out there that think that that's not mathematics at all and should be tackled in the social sciences. But I'm not one of those people. Well, I was good at I was good at statistics when I did my A level. I could I I couldn't do I couldn't do mechanics. Hated it, um, but I was very good at statistics. And I was actually and actually I really liked constructions. I do I, I don't understand what all the fuss is about. Um, but you mentioned there about time and teachers not having time to really think about these things. And in just over three months' time, um, or in, in, in about three months' time, students are going to be starting their GCSEs and their A levels and. All of a sudden, teachers up and down the country in maths departments are going to have gained gain time to think about. Um, and some teachers are probably going to go, oh, I think we need to update how we our schemes of work and we need to update how we sort of teach these particular things. Um, and they might pick up your book. Um, any words of advice for them sort of going in through that updating schemes of learning and using conceptual maths to sort of help them with that? Yeah, there is some advice, and it's right there on the first page in the tagline, and that is think about what you want kids to learn about. Yeah, I want kids to learn about this. So when I'm teaching, you know, whatever it is, negative integers, what do I want kids to learn about negative integers? Not just what do I want, what do I want them to be able to do with negative integers? I want to be able to add them and subtract them and multiply with them and divide them. Yeah, that's great. That's a given. Yeah. What do I want them to learn about negative integers? What do I want them to learn about this, about that? Make that your start point always. The, the poll was actually there on TeacherTap the other day when, you know, and thankfully the vast majority of teachers responded in the positive for the, or what I would say is the positive for this is what, you know, what's one of the, th what's the first thing you think about when you come to planning a lesson and the options were, uh, you know, the activities I'll use, or the questions I'll ask or some other bits and pieces, but the top one, and it was the one that most people picked, is what I want the kids to learn about. But in maths, you've got to be careful with that because the phrase about and the phrase to do can become, you know, I want, what I want the kids to learn about, well, I want them to learn about the column multiplication algorithm. Well, okay, have they learned enough about multiplication first? Again, coming back to that idea. Uh, so separate in your mind the idea of what you want them to do and what you want them to learn about and start with what do you want them to learn about? Mm. And then where that leads to, okay, well, in order, once they've learned about this, they should be able to do this, this and this. So then let's go with that. Thank you. And got one final question because you've been with us for nearly an hour and a half and you've been fantastic, Pete. Do you have a third book in you? <laughs> um 
Yes, I'm not going to say what that is yet, but or what I will say is that it's not going to be directly related to teaching maths because I think, you know, when you've written a combined total of 220-odd thousand words with visible maths and conceptual maths about ultimately the ways you think maths should be taught and the way and, you know, good things that you can do in the classroom – then if you've still got more to say at that point, you've probably not been succinct enough. So there is a third book. It's currently being worked on. Uh, it's in the. It's in actually the final stages, but it's going to take a slightly different bent, and it's not going to be directly related. It's still going to be in the in the the mass education sphere, but it's not going to be uh, sort of directly related to approaches for teaching mathematics and what kids should be getting out of that it, it, it's going to be slightly different so i won't do the reveal now uh because uh it's not yet sort of finalized and finished and, and things like that although crown house provided it, it you know once it's all together uh and um they've seen it crown house are uh looking to publish it so yeah uh later this year there might well be be something but in terms of ways of sort of approaching the teaching of maths and the students learning maths i think visible maths and conceptual maths is probably about all i've got to say on the subject unless i could unless i come up with some new stuff of course or unless my you know i change my mind on things or i'm always learning myself so maybe in a few more years when i've learned some more maybe there'll be some updates that's the beauty of our subjects, isn't it? But it's never finished, and that's the beauty of curriculum. It's never finished, and that it's always changing, and that we have new ways of explaining things. Pete, you've been an absolute legend. Thank you very much for giving up your hour and a half to talk about No, this. it's been a pleasure, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a good evening, and I hope you have a good half-term next week as well. Yes, thank you very much, and thank you very much to all of those people that have been listening. I know some of you have been listening for the whole hour and a half, so I applaud you very well. <laughs> thank you very much for that. No problem. Um, in terms of final mopping up for Teachers Talk Radio-wise, um, I wanted to just plug um, that on Friday the 3rd of March, we've got the NEU General Secretary debate with Daniel Kebedu and Neve Sweeney. They're going to be talking about their policy positions, their platforms and um, how the NEU would change um under their leadership um, in their contest for a five-year term to replace Dr Mary Bowsted and Kevin Courtney. Um, you can catch me again on Sunday morning on the Weekly Review. Um, that's at 10am. That's streamed live on YouTube, on LinkedIn and on our Twitter feed as well. Um, this Sunday, I am joined by Nathan Ginn, who's also in the studio, um, Leanne Latz and Ben Thomas. And then the following 27th of February, um, weekly review, I'm joined by Lucy Neuberger, Joe Fox and somebody else um, to be confirmed. But thank you very much for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio tonight. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure um, talking to Pete and refreshing my memory of maths. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to him and his book um, as much as I have. Uh, the book is available via Crown House. Um, but for now, I shall leave you this evening. Um, and so... Yeah, without any further ado, tune in, talk it out, and see you later. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.